Hey, good morning. We're going to do something we haven't done in about four months. Kids, you are invited to come on up front this morning. All right, come on up. If you're about fifth grade and under, you're welcome to come up and join us. Feel free to bring a mom or dad or somebody else along with you. No problem. Come on up. Have a seat. Good to see you. All right, come on up, guys. All right, good to see everyone. Somebody's debating. Come on up, buddy. All right. All right, it's good to see you. Glad to have you up here and see you close up. That's good, isn't it? All right, so I have something to show you here. I have a shield. This is a shield that one of my sons made. All right? Now, what is the job of a shield? Do you know? What is it, Liam? Yeah, protection, right? To guard and protect. Good. Yep. We we got it. All right. All right. So it wouldn't suit. Yeah. You made a suit and a sword when your dad was little. That's great. You can tell me more about it later, okay? All right. So I have a shield here. A job of a shield is to guard and protect, right? Now, what could this shield protect me from? Could it protect me if maybe if there was a rock coming at me? Could it protect me from that? Yeah. A boulder? Do you think it could protect me from a boulder rolling at me? Probably not. Um, Could it protect me from a stick maybe? If somebody tried to hit me with a stick, could that protect me? Yeah. How about a tree falling on me? Could it protect me from that? No, probably not. So there's some things this shield can protect me from and some things that it can't, right? What about... um, if somebody was trying to steal money from my piggy bank, would this help in that? No. What if um, somebody is saying hurtful things to me? Would this shield help me if somebody was saying something hard? No, it wouldn't help in that. So there's some things that it won't help me with, right? Now today in Psalm 3, in verse 3, we're going to hear it says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me. So God is a shield to us. He is a guard, a protector over us. And he can protect you from anything, even some of those things that this shield can't protect you from. So if you look at my shield, will this protect me from things coming behind me? No, because it's only in front of me, isn't it? But the verse here says, the Lord is a shield about me. The Lord is a shield all around us. He protects us. He's all-encompassing. God can protect us in every way. So when you face troubles in this world... And there's going to be some hard things. You can trust God as your shield. You can trust him to protect you from harm. All right? But you know what? Sometimes you might still experience painful things in your life. Sometimes there are still terrible things that happen around you. And sometimes there are still things that can make you sad. When these things come, it doesn't mean that God as your shield has failed you. But these things happen because there's still sin in our world. But God uses these things in your life for his purposes. And so he is still trustworthy. When you know that God is your shield, you don't need to fear. You can rest secure in him. But you know what? This only comes to you by faith, by trusting in who God is and all that Jesus Christ has done for you. And when you trust in that and have faith in that truth, then God is your 
shield and your protector. So when you truly believe in God and entrust yourself to him, give yourself to him, he is your shield and your peace and your place of rest when troubles come to you. So keep trusting in God as your shield. All right? Thanks for coming up, guys. Good to see you. You can go back and have a seat. Pastor Jeremy's going to come and preach. All right. Um, We are going to be in Psalm chapter 3, and so you can turn there in a moment, but we need to get some background to this psalm because there are a lot going on for the reason the psalm was written. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel. I have, I'm going to, I'm going to go into this in some depth. And so this intro is going to take a little bit, but I think it'll be worth it. Uh, so Second Samuel, you know how hard it is to talk and find your place in the Bible. Second Samuel chapter 2, we're going to begin in, and we'll go all the way to chapter 20. I'm not going to read it all. I just want to show you some of the background. The subtitle of Psalm 3 reads, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay? So the, the subtitle is part of the psalm. It's part of the inspired word of God, and the author of the psalm, David, is telling you why he wrote the psalm, what occasioned the song. And he assumes that you know the backstory. And so I want to... I don't want to assume that. I think you'll be familiar with this, at least parts of it. Most of you will. And uh, it's really crazy, the backstory here. It's something. So in 2 Samuel chapter 2, um, you see David is in Hebron. So he had just become king. Saul had died. And uh, David is reigning. He's not yet over all of Israel. He's over Judah, and he's reigning in Hebron, and you see the name of a couple of his wives there. Um, Hebron is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. David had several wives, Um, so polygamy was condemned in the Bible, and this is not right, but he has several wives, and uh, while in Hebron, two of them are particular in importance, and give him sons. It had Samuel 3, verse 2, and it says, Sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon. Okay, Amnon is really important in the background of Psalm chapter 3. Uh, and then in verse 3, you see his secondborn, but then the thirdborn in verse 3, Absalom. So Amnon and Absalom are vital to what's going on in Psalm 3. So just keep those two guys' name in mind, uh, and we'll get back to them in a moment. If you fast forward to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel 3, you see that in the spring of the year, a time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Joab was David's commander, general. He was, he was the top uh, warrior and his servants with them. And then at the end of verse 1 of chapter 11, 2 Samuel, David remained at Jerusalem. So David should have gone out. For whatever reason, he didn't. You guys maybe know what happens here. Late one afternoon, verse 2, David sees from the roof of his house a woman bathing. Bathsheba, he lusted after her. He sent for her. She came. They committed adultery together. 
she became pregnant. David wanted to cover his sin. So David told Joab, well, he sent for Uriah. Uriah was Bathsheba's husband. Uriah wouldn't go in to be with Bathsheba. He was an honorable man. And so uh, David concocted a way for uh, Uriah to be murdered. And so David planned for and committed first-degree murder uh, against Bathsheba. And the important part of that, is, uh, the sin, of course, is, is huge. But in 2 Samuel 12 then, God sends the prophet Nathan, and Nathan tells David this story of uh, a, a guy who had a, a little lamb, and they loved the lamb. The lamb was like a pet and, and so on. But this, this guy's neighbor had a, a rich neighbor who had flocks and multitudes of, of animals. The rich neighbor had a visitor, and instead of taking one of his multitudes of animals to sacrifice, he, he took the poor man's one lamb and sacrificed it. And Nathan's telling David the story, and David's enraged. That guy's dead. Kill him. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. God will give you everything. And you stole Uriah's wife. You're the man. And in um, chapter 12, 13, David repents. I have sinned against the Lord. So no excuses. David owns his sin. And God forgives the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. But David is going to reap what he's sown. There are going to be discipline from the Lord for his sin. First, David's son would die. David's son conceived by, with Bathsheba would die, and he did. Second, God told David that you committed this sin in private, uh, I'm going to, with your wives, they're, they're going to commit adultery in public under the sun. Um, and so the baby does die, and we'll get to the other part, but then God did not take away David's kingship. David still remained king. His line would still remain on the throne. Okay, so now back to Absalom and Amnon, focusing particularly on Absalom. So Amnon, again, his firstborn son, the rightful heir. Absalom, his thirdborn son, they're half-brothers, um, same father, different mothers. Absalom, in Second Samuel, um, well, that's not right. What chapter am I in? Chapter 13, that is right. Absalom had a very attractive sister, Tamar, so Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. Amnon lusted after Tamar. He wanted her and couldn't. He was, I don't know, cowardly or whatever, but he made himself sick uh, over his desire for her. And so, gals, a little point of application for you. It's very easy for you to use your beauty to get a man... Um, desirous after you and to make him sick. You, you really have this power. And I'm not saying Tamar actually was trying to do that, but that was reality. So here's Amnon, the oldest son, and, and he couldn't do anything. So Jonadab, he was Amnon's cousin, 
he crafted, he's a snake, he, he crafted a plan for Amnon to fake an illness and ask his father to send Tamar to nurse him, to make him some food and feed him. So he does this. While she's in his tent nursing him, he takes hold of her. She pleads with him not to do this thing and says, just ask our father, I'll marry you. He refuses, he rapes her and then is disgusted with her and sends her out. Now, this is David's family. This is what's going on in God's chosen king's family. This is the kind of sin going on. David does nothing to Amnon. Gets angry with him, but he doesn't discipline him. He does nothing. Absalom is enraged. Absalom nurses his anger for two years invites all of his siblings to a feast, has his servants ready, and when he gives the word, they slaughter Amnon. They murder. Absalom is guilty of first-degree murder. David's guilty of being a spineless father. Absalom flees for his life and remains in exile for three years. And David longs for the return of Absalom. So in chapter 14, Joab, remember that name before, Joab was David's chief general. Joab, realizing David's desire for Absalom returns, arranges for it. Absalom is allowed back into Jerusalem, but David refuses to see him. So Absalom remains in Jerusalem for two years, not being allowed to see the king. Joab won't speak to him, so Absalom tells his servants to go light Joab's fields on fire. (laughs) So they do this, and Joab, of course, then comes to Absalom, what are you doing? Well, now Absalom gets to talk to him, and Absalom says, I'd rather die than live like this. So Joab goes to the king, petitions David to allow Absalom to come before David, and David does. David allows Absalom to come before him. We're now in chapter 15. Absalom didn't just want to see his dad. Absalom was plotting a coup against his dad. We don't have the reasons why, but it's not hard to imagine that Absalom had begun to think very little of his father. His father's sin with Bathsheba, his father's murder of Uriah, his father's unwillingness to discipline Amnon. He doesn't think his father's fit to be king anymore. So Absalom begins over a period of years to win the hearts of Israel from his father. Absalom's a very patient man, as you could see with his murder of Amnon and now. So over years, he begins to play the judge for people and care for Israel. He begins to win their hearts after him. He then leads a surprise rebellion. David's most trusted advisor joins in. Many, many, many turn to Absalom's side. The hearts of the men were after Absalom, we read. David is forced to flee. Betrayed by his son, his close advisors, the people in general. David is taunted. He's mocked. David leaves ten of his wives in the palace to take care of it. The ark is brought and David sends it back to Jerusalem in faith 
that he would once be able to return to the city and worship God again there in God's presence in the holy city, Zion. So, that's the backstory. All the way up to chapter 20, David is in, um, is in exile in chapter 18. Absalom pursues David with thousands. Absalom is killed by Joab. So Joab, the, the one who brought Absalom back, Joab, the one who convinced David to, or, uh, convinced David to allow Absalom back into his presence. Joab uh, has three spears and pierces Absalom's heart, runs him through three times. This is all true. This actually all happened. David then is able to come back, ascend the throne again, and worship God in Zion, in the holy city. That's all the backstory to chapter 3. All right, so let me read now Psalm chapter 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Let me, let me say one more thing. This is the first Psalm that we see this uh, word, Selah, Selah, pronounced differently. People pronounce it differently. You see it in, at the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 4, and at the end of verse 8. We don't know for certain what it means, but the root word that it comes from means to lift up. So it's a musical term. These are songs, okay? These are songs. These are actually written to be sung. And most think it's a, it's a, it's a musical term that would cause you to pause, lifting up your voice. Maybe it's a key change, something to draw your attention specifically to what's just been said. And so if you've been a part of a church tradition where they say, lift up your voices, we lift them up to the Lord, that comes from this word. And this word is used, I think it's 79 times in the psalm and 39 different psalms. Here's the first. And so it's put at strategic places in the song to cause something to happen musically to draw your attention to that part. That's what's going on here. I just wanted to Try to help you there because I'm sure you've read the Psalms before and like, what's that there for? In fact, at my previous church, we had a music leader who uh, would sometimes read a scripture during it and, and he would read it and he'd say, Selah! Remember that? Jeff Farrell, you don't remember that? Oh my gosh. It was kind of corny to me. I kind of cringe when he did it. But I don't know, that memory's there. So whatever. It's really nothing to do with it. All right, let me read it. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. David's fleeing from Absalom. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for you in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. How we love your word. Teach us to meditate on it all the day. Your commandments make us wiser than our enemies, for it is ever with us. 
You have given us more understanding than all, your, all of our teachers, for your testimonies are our meditation. We can understand more than the aged, for we keep your precepts. Father, please hold our feet back from every evil way in order to keep your word. We do not want to turn aside from your rules, for you teach us. Your word is sweet to our taste, sweeter than honey. Though you're, through your precepts we get understanding, we hate every false way, and so God, please teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. There's three parts to the psalm. Some say four. I, I think three is probably a little better. We have the first two verses are David's complaint or ex- explanation of his trouble. Uh, second part, verses two to six, David's confession of faith in God, his trust in God that allows him to sleep. I think uh, verse five is the uh, the way that we understand how trust in God can help us even in awful circumstances allows you to rest, to get a good night's sleep. And then at the end, and part three, verses seven and eight are a praise. There's a praise. So there's quite a turn in this psalm from the first two verses and, and the big but in verse three that is the turn where he looks to God, takes his eyes off his circumstances, looks to God and is able to sleep and then praise the Lord. In Psalm 1, we met this contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And you see it in living color than in Psalm 3. You have the wicked, Absalom, who leads astray many sheep from the house of Israel in rebellion against God's anointed king. He leads and walks down a wide road that leads to destruction. He ends up hanging in a tree with three spears through his heart. And then you have the righteous man, David. And I think this is really helpful for us to get an actually biblical understanding of what Psalm 1 means by the righteous, blessed man. David is that man. And he's not a good man, is he? I love the Bible. It does not hide or cover over the sins of the fathers in the Bible. David is not a good man. He's a faithless man. He's a bad father. Right? He... He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And he's the one blessed by God. He's the righteous man. He's the one who turns in faith to God, having confessed his sins, being forgiven, trusts in God and is saved by God and experienced all of God's blessing. I think that should be helpful to you. The righteous, blessed man in Psalm 1 is not a perfect man or woman. He's not even good, but he's has faith in the salvation that God provides through faith in Jesus Christ. He's a repentant sinner who's suffering the consequences for his sin, even. Right? Psalm 3 are the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. And yet he is still the blessed man of God. In Psalm 2, from Pastor Jeff last week, we met God's um, response to the rebellion of nations against his king. We see it, that rebellion in Psalm 3. Here is a wicked man rising up in rebellion against God's appointed king. And God's response is to set his king on his holy hill. You see that in Psalm 3, don't you? Holy hill. He answered me from his holy hill. And so Psalm 3, okay, what's the holy hill? Well, it's 
where God's presence is, where God's king is. Jerusalem, here where the ark remained. Remember, David didn't allow the ark to go with him into exile. He ordered it back to the city. So David's praying to God in his presence. God answers him from his holy hill, which is here, Jerusalem. Now it's Christ ascended at the right hand of God the Father, ruling and reigning, and it's to him that we cry. And so, Psalm 3, Augustine says, this psalm should be understood as spoken in the person of Christ. Psalm 3 is for forgiven adulterous murderers. David is a hero of our faith. We look to David as an example of how to live a godly life. Isn't that crazy? David cries out to the Lord, having been forgiven his adultery and forgiven his murder, and God hears and answers and restores David back to the throne. David wasn't a good man, but he's a forgiven man. He's a beloved man of God. He has been anointed by the Holy Spirit <laughs> to write Scripture after the sin. Do you have that kind of understanding of the gospel? We've sung Psalm 51. I think we sang it last week. Did we sing Psalm 51 last week? That's David's confession of sin for the or confession of sin for the sin that with Bathsheba and the murder, where the Lord restores David and David says he will teach sinners God's ways, and that's what he's doing in Psalm 3. David has been restored, and now David wants to teach God's people what a restored life lives like, a gospel life looks like. He's doing it right here in this psalm for you and I. So verse 2, I've already explained it. They are saying to David's soul, you've done too much, you've gone too far, there's no hope, there's no deliverance, there's no salvation for you and God. So, is that you? Can you relate there? You have besetting sins. These things that cling. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's lying. Maybe it's greed. Just lust after stuff. Maybe it's sexual sin, pornography, adultery. And you commit it, and you think, there's no hope for me any longer. You listen to the condemning voice within your own head. You listen to the devil. You listen to the world. <clears throat> we have this going on in the world right now, don't we? The only unforgivables in our culture are Bible-believing Christians. There's no hope for you. Do you know that? Particularly if you're an older white guy. And none of you will admit to that. This is being said to your soul. There's no hope for you. There's no help for you. Erasmus says... Sins, too, have a voice. He's explaining that sin calls to us like a siren. Sin allures us, tempts us. But, continues Erasmus, when the soul has drunk the sweet poison of sin, there is a change in its tone. 
and it begins to speak bitter words. Right? Sin speaks initially very sweetly, very softly tempting you, but once you indulge, then it turns bitter. Erasmus says, You're, this, is what, this is what sin says to after you've committed it. Your sin is too great to deserve pardon. God is just. You can expect nothing except punishment. The sentence is harsh enough when passed for a single sin, but who could bear it if all your many sins, your adulteries, your robberies, your murders, your thefts were to cry out together to your soul, there is no salvation for you in God. Hard words, bitter words. Are you drinking those words in? So David's work of faith in this psalm this is, a, this is a work of faith. This is an exercise of faith in the psalm. David's son, David's advisors, David's people are all saying to him, there is no hope for you because of your adultery, because of your murders. They're taking his sin and throwing it right back in his face. You are not worthy to be our king. God's anointing is no longer with you. Get out Go away. We're done with you because God is obviously done with you, David. And David has faith in the forgiveness of God that we read to believe in what God says more than what they are saying, more than what his own condemning heart is saying, more than what the devil is saying. This goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Which voice are you going to listen to? Whose voice has prominence in your soul? The work of faith that we're being taught by David is to fight to take refuge in the mercy of God when the fiery darts of condemnation threaten your very soul or at least keep you from sleeping well at night. There is nothing so good for a Christian as a cleansed conscience which we have in Christ. And so David can sleep. I think that's the heart of this psalm. How sweet is God's mercy? How, what can this work of faith give you? It can give you peace to sleep at night. It can give you the kind of peace the kind of rest of conscience, the kind of assurance of God's care for you, protection over you, promises fulfilled for you to sleep. I lay down and slept. <laughs> I mean, think of the circumstances David's in. Many think that David actually wrote this psalm on the road fleeing. This is what he's writing. I don't know if that's true or not. His sons turned against him. His wives are being violated on his rooftop before everybody. His closest counselor is now his son's betrayer's counselor. Thousands of his people have turned against him. He's on the run, and I lay down and slept. We see Christ here. No one's been betrayed like our Lord and Savior. Right? Save yourself. There's no hope for you. 
Christ laid down and slept in me. He went into the grave and he came out. I laid down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. The Lord raised me. So how can you sleep this sleep of faith? That's what I want to do as we move along. I just want to give you some practicals. What can we learn from Psalm 3? Or maybe where are you at danger of being tempted to be filled with anxiety and fear? That's a big thing right now in our world, isn't it? Just how did you respond to the coronavirus? How are you responding? Their fearfulness? How about to the riots and to what looks like the ending of our culture? <laughs> Are you afraid? What keeps you from living more for Christ? Keeps you from raising your hands in worship? How can you sleep well at night? How about with sorrow? The sorrow overwhelms can't sleep or his business isn't good or you have conflict in your family how can you sleep it's like a test of faith how well do you sleep I understand there's medical reasons and so on that you might not sleep as well as others but here we're talking about the kind of anxiety of soul that keeps you from sleeping how can you gain it well first you see David cries out in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord. Or as one translation said, I cried out to God with my voice. David doesn't deny the awfulness and the pain of his circumstances. I think sometimes we get this idea as Christians that to be a person of faith is like to lie about what's actually happening. Or to deny the reality of the pain and the sorrow and the loss and the potential for bad things to happen. Like we think being a faithful Christian is just to lie about it to ourselves and others. No, it's not bad. I'm fine. It's not faith. It's a lie. David doesn't lie. He cries out. David has no need to appear better than things are to others. That's what we want to do. We want others to think that we're these strong, amazing Christians and these things in our lives don't affect us. So we want to maintain the appearance of like faith, of being good Christians and not crying and not being sorrowful and not being upset and not being angry. We don't want to admit our weakness, but David, with Joab right there, with those others fleeing with him, is crying aloud with his voice to the Lord. This is what it means to be childlike. And the Lord hears and answers from his holy hill. And so cry out to him, brothers and sisters. We'll see in Psalm 4 and Psalm 5 a lot of teaching on prayer. It's introduced here in Psalm 3. Learn how to complain to God. Learn how to raise your voice to God. Quit being so righteous. Quit being so proud. 
Make a fool of yourself before your God. He is your father. Cry out to him. God, why are my parents so difficult? God, why are my kids... God, why do my friends do this to me? God, why is work so... Like, cry out to him. That's for a second. This is a song. Can you imagine David fleeing from his son? And he's singing. He's writing a song. One of the commentators I read said that this song was called the morning psalm. The morning psalm. It was the practice of some, apparently many, I don't know, to sing this psalm in the morning to help them understand trust in God for the day to come. That God gave them sleep last night. I'm going to wake up, sing this psalm in the morning as a reminder of faith and trust and God's answering of prayer and God's salvation. So David sings. You know, I've talked about, and we've been doing it here, adding psalms to our song repertoire as a church. Sound repertoire, however you say that word. How do you say that word? Repertoire? Is that right? I, I want, I really do want you to learn to sing the psalms. And this is one thing as a shepherd, your shepherd here, that I, I want you to learn the spiritual discipline of psalm singing. We've introduced you to some groups setting the psalms to modern music, contemporary music, My Soul Among Lions. Uh, there's a group out of New Zealand who suddenly goes away, Seedbed Psalter. There are, all of the psalms have been set to hymn tunes, very familiar hymn tunes that set the actual words of the psalms right along with those tunes. I think... By David's example here, the singing of psalms has been given you to get you through the darkest nights of your soul. And if you don't take up this tool in the toolbox of faith that God has given you, you will not endure them as you could. You won't sleep as well as you should. But look what David's singing about. He's singing about God. He is Lord. He's my shield. He's my glory. David's ashamed. David's embarrassed, but God will lift him back up. He'll raise his head again. God is the one who hears our most guttural pleas and answers. God is the one who gives you sleep and refreshment and sustains you. God is the one in whom you can be truly fearless. God is the one who shatters your enemies and silences their mouths. He breaks their teeth. God is the one who is all your salvation and blessing. And this is what David is singing. Let your homes be filled with singing. So David sings. David sings. So, are you in trouble? Sing a psalm. Are you depressed? Sing a psalm. Are you afraid of a virus? Sing a psalm. Are you angry or troubled over the crumbling of our culture? Sing a psalm. Are you saying to your own soul, I've done too much? Sing a psalm. 
does the salvation of your children trouble you? Are you as a mom freaked out over all of the very creative ways that you imagine in your mind harm is going to come to your children? Sing a psalm. This is what we've been given as a church, 150 of them. Lastly, in verse 8, David focuses in, everything in this psalm is moving to verse 8, and he focuses in on this one main truth, salvation belongs to the Lord. Charles Spurgeon says that this one verse is the sum and substance of all true biblical doctrine. Salvation is God's. When you say salvation belongs to the Lord, it implies that it belongs to no one else. It's his. It's not yours. Ultimately, it can be yours through faith. It's not beholden to your will or your skill or your work. It doesn't submit to the free will of man. It isn't gained by works. The Bible says God chooses. God elects. God regenerates, God adopts, God forgives, God justifies, God sanctifies, and God will glorify. So can you lose your salvation? It's not yours. It's God's. He gave it to you. There's a reason that that Selah is at the end of verse 8. It wants you to raise up an octave. It wants you to lift up your voice here and sing, salvation belongs to the Lord. So meditate on that. This psalm is really about this one thing. God is your salvation so that no matter what is going on in your life, no matter what fears, real fears, you can sleep soundly by faith because salvation belongs to to the Lord. In the midst of trouble and grief and loss and betrayal, a son's betrayal, in the midst of that, when thousands are hunting you, salvation belongs to the Lord. Remember when Jesus was in the boat with the disciples and the sea was raging and he was sleeping? <laughs> Why? Because salvation belongs to his Lord. Why did Nehemiah and all of them hold a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other as they rebuilt the city? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. This is the most, this is for me, this psalm for me, when I have gone through the most difficult times in my life, particularly pastoral betrayals, when people have turned on me, this psalm and that one phrase has been life for me. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jeremy. Shut up. Get over it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this salvation is actually salvation. What does that mean? If you're a lifeguard and somebody's out there drowning and you get them and you bring them halfway in and they drown, is that salvation? 
If you're a firefighter and run in the building and have them in your arms and drop them halfway down the stairs and they perish, in the, have you saved them? No. God saves you all the way to the end. It's not salvation. It's not potential salvation. He's a God who begins a good work and... Philippians 1, 6, huh? Completes it. It's salvation all the way. All the way through till you're on your deathbed, breathing your last. And you don't die, but go to be with him. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. All the way. All the way, all the way, all the way. Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress goes up a highway, fenced on either side with a wall, and the wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not with great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher of the grave where it fell in and he saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden, of his sin. He looked therefore, and he looked again. He looked therefore, and he looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent down water, or sent waters down his cheeks. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So look, and then look again, and then look again, and keep looking at the cross. Let's pray. Father, praise you for the great salvation you've worked through us in your Son. Teach us to have faith that no matter what troubles we face, because salvation belongs to you, we can rest. And so, God, I pray for sleep for your people. Whatever their anxieties, whatever their fears, whatever their sorrows, whatever their troubles, God, grant them faith. You are their shield. You will lift their head. Just as you raise your son, you'll raise them. That even whatever their fears of many thousands, they can sleep. They can lay down and sleep and wake again because you'll sustain them. And so God, please teach us and give us this gift. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Trust in the Lord this week. Take yourself in hand. Take your fears in hand, bring them to the Lord, cry out to him, think on his greatness and power and love, and take a nap. Sleep well in the Lord. God is your shield. He will rise and defend you. He will rescue from all harm, and he has already done it in Christ, so fear not, for God is with you. Sleep well. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, Unto him who is able to save his beloved to the uttermost that come to God by faith in him because he lives to make intercession for you. Unto him who is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power both now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. And I love you.